to make it. History repeats itself. Try and you succeed. Never doubt that you're the one and you can have your dream. You're the best around. Nothing's gonna ever keep you down. You're the best around. Nothing's gonna ever keep you down. You're the best around. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Rob Schoon, assistant producer for Interchange. And I'm Jennifer Brooks, board engineer. Interchange host and producer Doug Storm couldn't be here tonight, but he's chosen several clips for us to highlight the work that Interchange does. You were listening to our tongue-in-cheek intro music by Joe Esposito, You're the Best Around, which you may or may not remember from the montage scene of The Karate Kid. Similarly, we're going to be sharing a series of great moments from the last year or so of Interchange. And just like the Karate Kid, Doug and the show are all about the underdog. That's right. WFAB's, WFHB's Interchange wants to talk about everything. No topic is off limit. And we do that because we want to make connections. Connections that advance our understanding of ourselves and the world that we inhabit. In the last year alone, we've talked about Macbeth what it's like to live in a college town, college students, guns, death, dying, Moby Dick, race, racism, photography, and that's just a sampling of the topics. Through these conversations, we search out some common thread of the human experience. Interchange transcends the categorical. And in the same way, Interchange likes to cross the geographical borders. Show producer and host Doug is always looking for ways to bring Bloomington to the world and the world to Bloomington. So tonight, for our 2016 Fall Fun Drive show, we're going to be highlighting interchange programs where Bloomington is on display and sharing its wealth with the world. Interchange investigates the arts, culture, and politics, always with an eye towards power inequalities. Power requires our critique and power relationships are normative. So you don't often even see that they exist or are unable to identify their effects. Most people probably think first of Indiana University when thinking of Bloomington, and it's hard not to. Comprising about half of the population of the town, many see Indiana University as something of a municipal conundrum. And that conundrum was the focus of the show Gownsburg an interview with local Common Council member and WFHB volunteer DJ, Steve Volan, up next. Singing and dancing up on the hill But down in the street we're paying the bills For wheelers and deals, fixers and spies Cashing their checks, they're peddling their lies so I won't go down to the company town no more. Smart 
That was Company Town by Show of Hands. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange. Our show today is Gownsburg, the messy child born of a dysfunctional couple. Geography scholar and Bloomington City Council member Steve Volan joins us to share his research into how college campuses function, for better and for worse, as municipalities. It's this hybrid institution that Volan calls Gownsburg. Indiana University will naturally serve as our example today. The institution has a complex relationship with the city of Bloomington, exerting its own control over vast amounts of real estate, housing and jobs, running its own parking and policing operations, and having extensive impact on demographics, economics, and lifestyles. Not just a business within Bloomington, IU can be considered a town in and of itself. Volan compares IU to other college campuses around the nation, arguing that many have failed to learn the lessons of livable municipalities and succumbed to the perils of urbanity. How should campuses see their role as lived spaces? How can city government cope with the campus? Steve Olin will tell us how American college campuses became dysfunctional towns. Thanks for joining me on Interchange, Steve. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So the, the problem, or I guess the, the impetus between, uh, for you and your research is the trying to understand the way in which the university as a separate place is also a part of the city, uh, also the way they work together. It's a very intriguing uh, question, not easy to, fil- uh, to filter out. There are a lot of Bloomingtonians who have the fervent belief that there was once some halcyon time when all students lived on campus. And that's actually never been true. Uh, in fact, it's never been true that more than half the students lived on campus. Mm. And to this day, only about 30% of the IU population lives on campus, if that. Uh, so that means the other 70% are living almost all in the city of Bloomington, along with virtually all the faculty and staff. So, I mean, there is certainly an integration there. Uh, the university doesn't try to make everyone live on its property. That's actually, again, a belief that many people who are not involved with the university believe that somehow should be, uh, but it's not practical. In fact, uh, um, you know, the colleges really only can exist if there is some place to accommodate the students that would attend it. Mm-hmm. So uh, at some point, some kind of town or city must be built uh, if whether that town is entirely on campus or not. Uh, we have a great American experiment where many colleges are trying different things, and it's different all over the country. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm joined by Steve Volan. We're talking about Gownsburg, the no place that exists in the relationship between cities and their universities or vice versa. I say no place there because it's, uh, again, a kind of a, uh, an amorphous place between things where, Steve has already mentioned, there's a, a sort of a, both a, a jurisdictional issue. The, uh, the university has its own police. The city has its own police. The, the one thing that uh, the university um, uses, I think, and you point out in your talk at the Pointer Center, Steve, was the, the fire station, the firehouse, or I mean the fire department, basically. So uh, that's the, a service that the university uses, make, makes use of via the city. And that's kind of one of your points or your, your angles in to say, this is why, you know, we need to really think about how the university makes use of the city and what the city gets out of it or doesn't. Right. I mean, the everything, you, in order to understand a university like Indiana, you have to remember that it is literally a state entity. It is not uh, subject to there are no state laws that regulate university campuses 
in any municipal way. In fact, the only entity that has jurisdiction over the land that is considered to be the IU campus are the IU trustees, Mm. most of whom are appointed by the governor. So there's certainly no democratic election of people who oversee um, activities that go on on university property. I mean, right across the street, uh, anywhere in the city, you know, there's all sorts of state laws and that regulate uh, how the city government must serve people, uh, what services it can and cannot provide, and the like. But there's precious few, you know, uh, on university campuses. We treat campuses like I don't have a word for it yet, like magic special places, and uh, you know, the as workplaces that that's fine, but. Why should why are they housing people? Why do they believe that they should house people? And this is actually a very interesting question too. I get a lot of pushback from people on well, they've always housed students. Students need to be housed. That the, there's a very deep pathology uh, behind comments like that we, that we can explore. Again, that was a clip from Gownsburg. Doug's interview with Bloomington Common Council member and student in the master's program in geography at IU, Steve Volan. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. It's our fall fun drive, and we're asking you to get to your phone right now to support Interchange, our longest-running public affairs program and only available on WFHB. Call 812-323-1200 or go to wfhb.org and click on that large red donate button at the very top of the page and show us your love. Yeah, that's right. So we want to send a big thanks out to Charles Brandt, who called in with his pledge and said his reason for giving is because he enjoys interchange. So thank you so much, Charles. Um, We really appreciate hearing from our listeners This is a community radio station, which means that um, we're not some third-party entity, some corporate beholden uh, entity that's sitting up here deciding what you should listen to. We're really creating programming that is important to us as community members. So we really thank Charles, and we would like to get some more people on the phone. Please call us at 812-323-1200 or as Rob noted, you can also donate securely online, going to wfhb.org. One of the things that really has impressed me about the news production here at WFHB is its focus on matters of local concern. Um, I am not from the Bloomington area originally, and I moved here about eight years ago, and it was really when I started to listen to WFHB more regularly that I started to realize that I had been missing out on local news. And the daily local news and cultural and public affair programs like Interchange uh, really helped me tap into a dimension of this great Bloomington community in South Central Indiana um, that... I had been sort of missing out on before. So, you know, we can't do it without uh, the support from listeners. So please call us at 812-323-1200. 
Rob, anything you wanted to add to that before well, we get back? Yeah, you know, uh, local reporting is more important than ever, but it's at the same time really getting rarer than ever to, to get. And WFHB yeah. is a great place uh, to get that local reporting. Um, and interchange is, is a big part of that as well. Uh, you know, back in May, way before the national press or Hillary Clinton were talking about it, Interchange ran a full-length feature audio documentary about the alt-right. Uh, it was produced and recorded by WFHB volunteer Dan Young, uh, who spent a lot of his time just going out and investigating, you know, the, the new white supremacists that were endorsing Donald Trump and kind of making uh, headway in the political scene, uh, and some of them living in Indiana. Uh, you should really check out that podcast at wfhb.org slash news slash interchange. Uh, but that's local reporting at its finest. And, you know, WFHB is the place to get that kind of community-sponsored citizen journalism. Uh, and it's a great example of the collaborative nature of this volunteer-powered station, where anybody can come and train and make their voice heard and really con contribute to the, the uh, community. That's right. So while you're online checking out that podcast, go ahead and click on that red donate button. Now let's turn to an award-winning conversation that Doug had with Bloomington's chief of police, Mike Dekoff, centering on the unequal relationship between citizens and the police, one mediated by the gun. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange. We've opened with The Clash with Police and Thieves. Our show today, On Police Force. Let me start with this bit from Jean Anouy's version of Antigone, performed in Nazi-occupied France in 1942. They are the guards. They chew tobacco. One smells of garlic, another of beer. But they're not a bad lot. They have wives they are afraid of, kids who are afraid of them. They're bothered by the little day-to-day -day worries that beset us all. At the same time, they are policemen, eternally innocent, no matter what crimes are committed, eternally indifferent, for nothing that happens can matter to them. They're quite prepared to arrest anybody at all, including Creon himself, should the order be given by a new leader. Some of you may have heard that Interchange has won a 2015 Society of Professional Journalists Award for our program, which aired on December 1st last year, Organized for Violence, The Police and You. Specifically, the award was for the segment in which I interviewed Bloomington Police Chief Mike Dekoff about the work of policing and the inequality we all face whenever we are in the presence of police. That is, we face unequal legal force that is, by and large, always justified. As a citizen, as a resident, as a person, the gun is what I'm seeing always. Like, well, the police officer is a gun to me. Part, part of the problem is, is, is the prevalence of guns in this country. Um, you know, you look at um, uh, the United Kingdom, for instance. You know, um, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to meet a couple of police officers um, that that were from the UK. They came here to, to work on a case. And um, again, in London, th they're just not guns. Um, that's not what happens here. And so um, – but I asked. I said, so when you, were, when you have a situation where someone is armed 
And they, she said, well, we have tactical units that, that come out, much kind of what you were talking about, um, having you know maybe weapons in the car or something like that. Um, that's not the situation here. Um, they're, they're, the prevalence of guns, the, the number of times we come across people in Bloomington who are armed would, would probably really surprise you. Um, there's just such a prevalence of, of guns. And so, you know, in order to, to keep police officers safe and, and the public that we respond to help, that's that's why. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, uh, you know, it, it still stands to, uh, I guess, um, I would argue that what could keep you safe is your Kevlar. You know, that you wear body armor to be safe. You wear what's the gun for is to possibly shoot someone. It's to perpetrate violence on another person. Again, I'm not saying that it might not be a response that makes sense because someone shoots at you. Um, I just think that in, in a, as you say, in a country where, there, where guns are legal – in, in, in if, you know, where guns are a part of our national heritage, our, uh, our Second Am- um, uh, Amendment understanding that we can carry them. I just don't see how having a gun has, has changed the response for people to shoot or not shoot, you know, has, has, has changed how people respond otherwise. I, w- I, would, um, I would venture to say that having um, law enforcement officers who are armed, that probably um, has – stopped people from being shot because the 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 reality is is if someone has a gun um and the the police are there they're probably going to be less likely to use that gun because of the police officer themselves being armed would you think that being uh, surrounded by police uh, circled by police having uh, um police respond in a way that would be uh, a show of force would be as um you know, would disarm the idea of someone wanting to shoot? Or do you think that people that are going to shoot people are probably going to shoot people? Um, I would think that probably people who are going to shoot people are going to shoot people. We respond all the time to circumstances where um, we have a group of officers maybe responding and showing up with several officers doesn't seem to um, de-escalate the situation. Um, and, and many of those times, the officers aren't using any kind of weapons. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, you're dealing with human beings and everyone's different and everyone's going to respond differently. It's time for a break. This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm Rob Schoon, sitting in for Doug Storm tonight. This is a special backyard edition of Interchange, highlighting interviews with local politicians, police, scholars, and artists. So far, we've heard clips from Doug's interviews with local Common Council member Steve Volan about the tensions between campus and community culture, and Bloomington Police Chief Mike Dekoff on police force. That second show won a 2015 award from the Indiana Society of Professional Journalists. When we return, we'll hear a clip from Interchange's show on the local production of King Lear, which was done in its original pronunciation. Our break music tonight is Doug's favorite jazz tune by composer and bassist Charles Mingus. This is Hog Collin Blues, off the album Oh Yeah. 
Support for Interchange and WFHB comes from Growing Opportunities, a social business project of the South Central Community Action Program. Growing Opportunities is an urban hydroponic farm that provides job training opportunities for low-income people with barriers to employment, especially people with disabilities. We grow produce that is sold to local eateries, supermarkets, hospitals, and schools. Information available at 812-332-2168 or online at insccap.org. Listening to Interchange on WFHB. It's our fall fun drive, and we've got a special backyard edition of Interchange, featuring clips chosen by host and producer Doug Storm to illustrate the great strengths of our community, local conversations about what's important in politics, arts, and government. Jen, what's next? Doug opened that last clip with Police Chief Mike Dietkoff with a quote from Jean Anwi Antigone. Prompted, I'm sure, from having done an interview with the director of the IU Theater's production of the play, Interchange often does arts interviews, and our next clip comes from one such with Murray McGibbon and Graham Hopkins, director and lead actor, respectively, of the IU Theater's production of King Lear in what is called Original Pronunciation. Know that we have divided in three our kingdom, and tis our fast intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths, while we, unbarthened, crawl to our death. This is Doug Storm for Arts Interchange. You just heard actor Graham Hopkins recite his opening lines as King Lear in what's called Original Pronunciation for the New Frontier's special production of King Lear. Audiences will be treated to King Lear the way it sounded in 1606 at its first performance at the Court of St. James. Director and IU Associate Professor Murray McGibbon says that this is the first original pronunciation performance of William Shakespeare's King Lear since the 17th century. I sat down in the WFHB studios with McGibbon and Hopkins, the South African guest actor who plays King Lear, to discuss the whys and wherefores of original pronunciation, or OP, McGibbon's post-apocalyptic staging of the play, as well as the primary elements of dementia and loss of identity in what many considered to be the pinnacle of Shakespeare's, or Shakespeare's, art, and possibly of all Western literature. 
what interests me is this man who was omnipotent, is reduced to a gibbering bag of bones at the end. Well, I mean, he dies at the end of the play. <laughs> it also, I can't believe you gave that away. <laughs> well, a lot of people die in the play. <laughs> it also examines very human um, uh, things that happen to us all. Old age, infirmity, indignity in old age. And Murray has taken the trouble to draw that out and make it very explicit. Mm. Uh, Leah's frailty at the end is common to all of us. We all have aged parents or aged grandparents. We've seen that decline and that loss of faculty. And it's a very human thing. Yeah, it's it's the most, I think, it grabs you most right off the bat, right? He he divides the kingdom and it's immediately wrested from him. You know, he's immediately seen to not get his hundred men 50 men? No? 25? <laughs> you know the play well, but that is, that is the way, the, that's the way of the world, isn't it? <laughs> right. Dad, you don't Hold on that. to your inheritance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why do you even need one man, Dad? Just, we'll take care of you, really. Wink, wink. Right. Yeah. It's pretty scary, actually. Are there, um, are there particular key moments you guys have, that you find are your favorites in the play that you really uh, look forward to playing, or, there, or even hard moments you thought, ah, oh, this, this one's going to be rough for me? Well, there's a particular scene when... Uh, Lear is brought out of hospital where, you know, he says, you do me wrong to take me out of the grave and meets Cordelia and thinks he's seeing a vision. Murray has staged that uh, as a frail old man in a battered wheelchair on a drip and as one is fairly helpless and hopeless in a a hospital environment like that. And it's very poignant Mm -hmm. Seeing his daughter again, it's very moving and uh, and gut wrenching, very identifi- identifiable. If you've been inside a hospital, you you know what it looks like, and you know how much you do lose your dignity when you're being manhandled right. by orderlies who are sort of looking after your body, but not necessarily your mind and soul yeah. and dignity. So you uh, you gave away something there for me, like the, where the setting is. So you're you're setting it in the hospital, or no, no, no it's it's set. Somewhere in the distant past, just before the end of time. Yeah. Uh, so it's very, very futuristic, mm. but the costumes are, uh, uh, they're, they're beautifully designed and rendered, I think, but they're not evocative of any particular era. It's the, you know, it's the, the play is set in, a, in, in your own imagination. Murray's defined it as a postmodern production, which is great because postmodernism defies any kind of definition. So... There are lots of, lots of, of, of um, surprises in it, perhaps. It's kind of a, um, apocalyptic in a sense. It is. Yeah. It's definitely post-apocalyptic yeah. play. Well, as, you know, as I was going through the play again, I didn't get a sense for any uh, necessary time frame anyway. Like, I was going to ask that question. Is there a Shakespeare's sense? play doesn't really root it in a time frame. It's not, one of the, you know, it's not one of the history plays. It's not rooted in any particular event in history. It's all a fantasy. He refers to Dover and he refers to France, but... That's about it. And he refers to Albion. So, you know, England, France, the channel, but nothing more than that, really. Well, it's uh, another thing that strikes me as you were talking and talking about the the visual characteristics of the staging. Uh, it's one of the key elements in the play that the visual is is, is problematic, right? Uh, obviously, uh, Gloucester is blinded, and that's only when he gets blinded that he begins to see in some sense, right? <laughs> but in terms of dramatics, that is, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity for the audiences to use their imagination and for the, for the stage to create something that is in the moment, wonderfully dramatic. 
Um, obviously, we're not, you know, it's, it's not real. We're not pretending that in the movies that it's real. Uh, it's, it's staged and it's highly theatrical. And people will come to it, hopefully, and see that and be immersed in it and horrified by it. And now, uh, Murray, you mentioned, too, the, your, your sense that, you know, the, obviously Shakespeare was a dramatist and he wrote plays and they were acted. Um, but in, a, in many plays, uh, you get a sense that it would be impossible to, to understand unless you, were, unless you had the opportunity to see each play 70, 80 times. But you can obviously read it that many times. So there's a, there's a sense, I, I think, that we get pulled between this idea that Shakespeare is meant to be seen versus... but. You know, but I get so much more out of it if I read it. Um, does that? I mean, I'm not trying to stand on one side or, or either side of those things, but trying to, I guess, say that you know, reading is as valuable, perhaps. It is as valuable, I think, when you really, really delve into the text. However, I feel that the the fact that so many school school children um, have an animosity towards Shakespeare is because they're taken through reading the text in the classroom and that's not really how to experience it. The way to experience it is to go and see a production to be, to be drawn into the storyline and to stop worrying about the language. Uh, when you've done that, then you can go back and read the text and realize how rich and wonderful it is. Study it, yeah. And, he, you know, I think he tells you what's going on and then he tells you what he's told you and then he tells you a third time for good measure. So if you think of how his plays were produced in the early 1600s in England at the Globe Theatre, people wouldn't have been sitting sedately in seats. Most of them would be standing. A few would be sitting. Chickens were being having their heads lobbed off. Cows were giving birth. Babies were screaming. It must have been a very rowdy social occasion going to the theatre. And for that reason, I think everything was heightened and you know, overtly theatrical. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. It's our fall fun drive, and this is a special backyard edition of Interchange, with clips featuring interviews about local arts, politics, and government. We're asking you to get to your phone right now to support Interchange, our longest-running public affairs program, which is only on WFHB. Call 812-323-323. 1200 or go to wfhb.org and click on that large red donate button at the top of the page and show us your love. You know, Rob, it's been fun to listen to some of these highlights from Interchange over the last year and in particular this last segment uh, about King Lear. Um, you know, I often joke with Doug Storm, the host of Interchange, uh, that I, I don't read as much as I used to. Doug, Doug <laughs> consumes literature at such an amazing rate, and I'm sort of more of a nonfiction gal. And it's really through interchange that I've started to um, get interested again in literature for literature's sake. And I think I, I had gone through this stage where, you know, I wanted to deal with sort of the heavy uh, topics of the day, and I was always drawn to these nonfiction books. But really through interchange and, and a segment that features Shakespeare in particular, I think has really helped to remind me how literature and art is really just a proxy for talking about these same ideas. And it's been eye-opening for me. Plus, it also gets really boring and old to read nonfiction all the time. <laughs> so I'm just really happy um, to have had that inspiration. Yeah, well, and what's really interesting about the way Doug operates is um, he does really find the intersections between arts, politics, culture, uh, and he kind of brings it home, uh, choosing topics for shows that affect the local Bloomington community, 
but at the same time, you know, sometimes his, his interchange uh, episodes can range from interviews with world-renowned scholars uh, or Bloomington locals. Um, so whether it's, you know, a hard-hitting look at campus rape culture uh, or a fun romp through a Midsummer Night's Dream with, you know, the traveling players that are coming to Bloomington and showing it at the Buskirk, uh, Interchange really just can find those connections and it's so wide ranging in the diversity of topics that Doug will, will find ways to talk about with pretty much anybody. And that kind of diversity is something that, uh, is true about WFHP in general too, I think. Yeah. So we want to thank you for being a part of this community radio endeavor with us. And please do show your support by calling 812-323-1200. You can also donate online. It's secure and safe and convenient. Uh, There's a big red donate button up on the top right-hand corner of the page, and that can be found at wfhb.org. So thank you for being a part of that. You know, Rob, you... You talked about that idea of intersectionality um, and, you know, something about community radio. There, There isn't that sort of filter between you and the truth that you might get through a media organization that, you know, is maybe beholden to um, ratings or a corporate um, body or, you know, shareholders. And to me, that's just such a privilege to be a part of. I'm so privileged to be a part of this interchange team, to be a part of WFHB's news and public affairs um, forum. And it's because I value that. It's really special to me. I, I often am frustrated when I feel like I go online or turn on other radio stations and all I'm getting is sort of a regurgitation of the same news story that I heard in 15 other different formats. And with WFHB, both in the hard-hitting news that comes through on the daily local news, and then also here on these public affairs programs, um, it's something unique and more important to me, it's something of me, it's of my community, it's for my community, it's by my community. So, you know, I urge all of you listening, please call us at 812-323-1200. That's 812-323-1200. Yeah, you know, uh, WFHB News is volunteer-powered, which means it's literally the Bloomington community reporting about itself. Uh, and, you know, whether you can be a volunteer and, and join the team, uh, that's always wonderful. But you can always support WFHB uh, by pledging your support at 812-323-1200 or going to wfhb.org. So now we're getting back to the interchange program. Uh, Bloomington gets some great acts and artists that come through town, uh, as we all know, and performing at places like the Buskirk Chumley Theater. Uh, Rhiannon Giddens uh, of the California Chocolate Drops played there, and Doug gave listeners a preview of what she had in store for them uh, in his conversation with the nationally renowned singer-songwriter and banjo player, Rihanna Giddens. Did she went home to her house that night, that house so cold and mean, and she held her sister close to her side and never more did sing, sing, and never more Is there a point where 
uh, certain songs just do seem to to appear in in your life rather than you sort of working through them. I know that that's also a kind of familiar myth of, of creation that, uh, you know, the divinity uh, breathes through you and all of a sudden you've got a song. And I know it takes hard work as well. But sometimes, sometimes, right, uh, Rhiannon, sometimes um, you look down and there's a song. That is true. You know, but the, the song, the song needs a tool to be written, you know? The song doesn't just, like, vomit itself out of <laughs> Well, there, there's a different image from the the divine wind of of the you know to to the the vomit uh, out of the the hard work of the soul probably. No, but you know, but you know what I mean. It's like you you have to you, know, you have to have tools. Mm-hmm. You know, to be, be inspired is great, but if you don't have the tools to then do something with that inspiration, to write it down, to n- know the chords, or to have any chords, you know. And um, for me, like. So, so I guess a couple of those examples would be Last Kind Word Blues, which is the, an interpretation of the Gishi Wiley song. Um, I just, that one just came out. You know, that one is like, some of those songs with that voice and that feel and that woman's energy, like, I definitely tap into something. I, I you know, I couldn't tell you what it is, but I feel it. And, like, the, the voice comes out and I just have no control over it, you know? The last kind words I hear my dad say Lord the last kind words I hear my dad say If I die If I die In the German war Send my body, send it to my mother-in-law If I get killed, if I get killed Please don't bear my soul I prefer just leave me out Let the buzzers eat me whole um, That definitely happened for that song also Angel City, which is the only composition that's original on the record. Um, so that was in direct response to the new basement tape session and it was re- it was really one of those I say I listened to all the songs that we'd made, you know, sat and listened to all the songs and I went back to my hotel room and literally I stayed up all night and just wrote the song. It's just like it's just you know, in a in a way that I never had before about a personal about a personal experience. So, you know, that that definitely does happen. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, you know, I, I think we have to acknowledge it. We also have to acknowledge all the work that went into that, you know, sure. into knowing the chords to knowing, you know, what words go right next to each, you know, recognizing when that's, that's it, you know, or whatever. Yeah, you, you've done the groundwork. I mean, you have, that's that's the work you do day in and day out, and you have to prepare for those those moments of, of divinity. They're, they They do come, but you have to be the right, at the right place too. That's exactly, exactly. So uh, let me ask one final question, please. That's uh, it's really, and, and again, it's it's a version of the favorites, but it's more um, has to do with what you've learned historically, I suppose. You know, is there a particular story out of your understanding of the musical past, or the the slave past, or or uh, instrumental past? Is there a particular story that moved you more than any other, or that you know what might be representative of of how history has really moved you in your work? 
I mean, I have to say, probably the story that inspired Julie is like one of the it was one of well, one of the ones where I read it and I just got chills all over my body, you know. Um, and it just like moved me so much to write. Julie was the first one that I wrote uh, of the series slave songs, and that's a story from this book called The Slave War, um, which is a collection of slave narratives, you know, about and around the Civil War. And it was a conversation between um, her, uh, a, a woman, an enslaved woman, and her mistress as they were watching the Union Army come over the hill. And, it, you know, I, I poeticized it in the song, but, you know, it's basically, you know, she's, the, the mistress is going, are you, you know, you're not going to go with those, those Yankees, are you? And, you know, she's like, yeah, I'm going to go. You know, i gotta, you know, I got to leave this place. And, you know, they have this conversation. And, and the thing that really gave me the chills is, she says, you know, will you hide the plate? You know, which is oftentimes plantations would, they would, the height, the, the wealth of the plantation was in the silver plate, you know, the, the setting center, you know, all of, the, all of the, the, the trays and all that stuff was made out of real silver, you know, and that's where the wealth was, and they'd hide it with the, in the plantation cabin, you know, so that the army hopefully wouldn't bother the slaves, and then, the, you know, when they went on, they would have the wealth left, and she said, you know, would you hide it for me? And, you know, she was like, well, you sold four of my children to buy this place. So, really, it's, it's mine anyway. That idea just, like, blew me away. It really frankness of that conversation. Um, and that was happening. So, you know. Julie, oh, Julie, won't you run? Because I see down yonder the soldiers have come. Julie, oh, Julie, can't you see? Them devils have come to take you far from me. Mistress, oh mistress, I won't run. Cause I see down yonder the soldiers have come. Mistress, oh mistress, I do see. And I'll stay right here till they come for me. Giddens, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was a pleasure. Rhiannon Giddens is the co-founder of old-time string band The Carolina Chocolate Drops. She released her first solo album, Tomorrow Is My Turn, in February of this year. This is Arts Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. Mistress, oh mistress, I...
find that trunk of gold by your side. Mistress, oh mistress, that trunk of gold is what you got when my children you sold. It's time for a break. This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm Jen Brooks, sitting in for Doug Storm tonight. And this is a special backyard edition of Interchange, highlighting interviews with local politicians, police, scholars, and artists. We just listened to a segment with Rhiannon Giddens uh, that Doug did earlier this year. Uh, Before that, we had an interview with Police Chief Mike Dietkoff, and I think You know, just those two shows alone really give a good sense of some of the range and variety uh, that you can find here on Interchange. We're going to turn to some break music tonight. Uh, Doug's favorite jazz tune, which is composed by bassist Charles Mingus. This is Hog Collin Blues off of Oh Yeah. Support for Interchange and WFHB comes from Growing Opportunities, a social business project of the South Central Community Action Program. Growing Opportunities is an urban hydroponic farm that provides job training opportunities for low-income people with barriers to employment, especially people with disabilities. We grow produce that is sold to local eateries, supermarkets, hospitals, and schools. More information is available at 812-332. 2168 or online at insccap.org.
Welcome back. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. It's Fall Fun Drive, and we've got a special backyard edition of Interchange featuring clips chosen by host and producer Doug Storm, all illustrating the great strengths of our community, local conversations about important topics in politics, arts, and government. Rob, what's next? Our final clip is from Doug's interview with Hildegard Keller, a literary critic, author, and filmmaker. She teaches German literature at Indiana University and at the University of Zurich. Keller's most recent project, the film Whatever Comes Next, is a documentary about Bloomington painter and scholar Anne-Marie Mahler, who also happens to be the mother of former Interchange host Andy Mahler. A major theme of the film and the interview is identity, particularly that of the immigrant and the artist. As an artist, I have no single vision, no obsession. I wait quietly for a stunning, pleasing vision to present itself. My paintings celebrate that great breath which is ecstatic freedom. They celebrate the stunning beauty of the sweet light that reappears every morning. They celebrate just plain being alive. Okay, go ahead. Well, I'm Hildegard Keller, and I give WH... WFHB. WFHB? Yes. Hereby, <laughs> formally... <laughs> Play, joyfully permission to record me. Very good, thank you. Okay, so um, we can just jump right in then if you're if you're ready to jump in, mm-hmm. or I can read these if you'd like me to read these so you can hear it. Yeah, why don't you? Uh-huh. <clears throat> All right, I'll do that. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight's program is a pre-recorded conversation with literary critic and author and filmmaker Hildegard Elizabeth Keller, who teaches German literature at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Keller's most recent project, the film Whatever Comes Next, was shown at the IU Cinema on April 26th. This is a documentary about local painter and scholar Anne-Marie Mahler. Born in Vienna in 1926, Mahler fled by herself as a 12-year-old to the United States and since 1955 has lived in Bloomington, Indiana, and in the summers in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. The documentary portrays the artist's outer and inner lives, which bridge two centuries and two continents. Welcome to Interchange, Hildegard Keller. Thank you very much. Is there a way that uh, you being from uh, Switzerland, uh, being not from this country resonates with you with her own story you're coming here is there a a sense that that you have that in common yeah i think so too i mean there are a host of other more biographical reasons and coming to a new country we certainly have in common the topic of emigration yes to um to integrate to get to know people um to come to terms also with who who am i here who am i there who was i who am i here and whom who who will i become When I came to Bloomington, this was a secret. This was a wonderful place that people didn't realize, an island in other whatever, you know. 
but then we, we truly fell in love with it. They took us to the music school, to the opera, which was in something called East Hall in those days, and it was wonderful. And we met the most wonderful people, many of them refugees from Germany and Austria, especially in the music school, of course. And we just never felt like leaving here, because here, is, this is where the friends are, this is home, and I love it. Uh, so yeah, that that um, that thread of emigrating and leaving something behind, um, and winning something, earning, gaining new opportunities—we have that in common. And then she is from the generation of my parents. My parents uh, were Germans, and uh, they immigrated also into Switzerland. So still very much that feeling of. My parents have left a country that was destroyed in the Second World War, and um, had to to do this process of assimilation in, in Switzerland. When this idea of making a film with her, and I say really with her, not just about her, um, when this idea condensed, it was very clear to me that uh, despite of the topic of emigration, of exile, um, having to leave the hometown behind, um, this would not be a film about adversity and especially the adversity, uh, adversities we're speaking of in the 20th century. Um, but this would be, I would emphasize her as an artist, a forceful personality, an original personality um, that would face um, new, that would embrace, face, face things that were on her path. And of course, there are adversities in everyone's life. And they inform your identity because they bring out, they help to bring out, in the best case, the best things in you talents, um, new perspectives. You open up and you become a different person. In 1938, Austria ceased to exist and became part of Nazi Germany. With one brutal blow, a thrilling moment in Vienna's cultural life had been eviscerated, trampled, exiled. My mother and my aunt are in a taxi on our way to the railroad station. In the dark, we ride through the same streets that I have rushed through so many times in the early morning on my way to school. The darkness of the streets is broken only by dim rectangles of light in windows, bright spots of light from street lamps, moving spots of light from automobiles. I have a small suitcase with the clothes I will need in Holland and a bag of sandwiches and fruit for the train. It will take a night and a day and part of another night to travel through Austria and Germany to get to the Dutch border. After disconnected farewells, I go up the steps with my things and find the right compartment, and then I crowd at the window with the other children. Groups of grown-ups are standing on the platform, looking with rigid faces, starting to wave. Then the train slowly pulls out of the station. It is over now. We have left danger. That's all the time we have for tonight for this special Fall Fun Drive edition of Interchange. There are many, many, many more shows available to podcast or download at wfhb.org slash news slash interchange. It's not too late to call and pledge your support. Call at 812-323-1200. That's 812-323-1200. 1200 or go online to wfhb.org and look for that big red button next time on interchange everybody wants some
host Doug Storm talks about sex with author Amy Rose Spiegel, author of Action, a book about sex, and Jen Mayer, IU senior instructor in gender studies. Action interweaves Spiegel's own sexual autobiography with loving advice on one-night stands, relationships, and everything in between. Spiegel also includes dissections of threesomes, how to pick up people without being a skeezer, celibacy as a display of autonomy, and of course, how to clean your room in 10 minutes if a devastatingly lovely side piece is about to stop by. You're not going to want to miss this one. Everybody wants some next time on Interchange. Thanks for listening to Interchange. I'm Rob Schoon, assistant producer and editor of the show. And sitting in tonight for Doug Storm, who hosts and produces Interchange. Jennifer Brooks, co-hosting this special fun drive show with me, is our board engineer. Joe Crawford is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie with Carl Pearson, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for your continuing support of volunteer-powered, independent, public affairs programming. None of this is possible without you, so go and pledge your support right now. Thank you.